All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. And as you are turning there, let me tell you what the key truth is this morning. The key truth is that God's faithfulness is to be displayed in and declared by the repentant remnant. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness is to be displayed in and declared by the repentant remnant. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Romans 3, 1 through 4. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true that everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we step into this, Paul is beginning to make a transition here. He has deconstructed for both the Gentile and the Jewish Christian all of the things that they tried to use to distinguish themselves and to declare that they were more favored by God. And what he is now doing, which is part of why Romans is such a beautifully constructed work, is he's beginning to anticipate their questions. We're going to see the first two here this morning in this text, and we'll get a few more next week. But he's beginning to turn them toward what's most important, and that is that God is faithful. He is taking them out of the valley. He took them into what the bad news was and is, and now he's beginning to try to turn their gaze to the good news, which is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, there's a valley yet to come when he's going to, again, remind them that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's just to make sure that anybody who thought they weren't caught up in the, the, the net of things that he was deconstructing, that, that it's very clear this is, this is the universal human condition. And so here, as he anticipates these questions, there's some things for us, the church, to consider that, that these questions actually matter to us as well. Because we ask the same questions, right? What good does it do to have all this pomp and circumstance? Well, not a lot, not a lot of pomp here, but, but the circumstance, right? Uh, what, what good does it do? What does it matter in day-to-day life? What does it matter given how the church has behaved itself publicly in America on various issues for hundreds of years? What does it matter to to have the Word of God when people behave so poorly? I don't see it making much of a difference around here. Might be what you're thinking. And that actually ties into both questions. So what good does it do to be the church and have the oracles of God, which is the Word of God, What good does it do for for us to try to declare the faithfulness of God when so many who claim his name behave so unfaithfully? So those are the questions that are before us this morning. But before we get there, it would be good for us to answer this question in our hearts and minds. What are you seeing, reading, or experiencing of Christ's church that you find encouraging? See... If you're like me, and I I was actually just praying about this this morning, I am wired for critique and deconstruction. Like that is, I I can, that is my natural bent. Many of you know this. Like if you ask my opinion of a certain restaurant, rarely is it middling, right? It's usually strong. Um, 
If you ask my opinion of any sort, sort of libation or music or movies, I'm pretty definitive on what I think about it. And, and I'm not easy to please, I, I, I admit that. Um, I grew up in a trailer park. I had to go one way or the other, right? <laughs> Either I liked everything or I had to be, become more discerning in my palate. And so you are probably similar in various ways. Like it is always easier to see what's wrong. It's always easier to magnify a bad experience instead of do the hard work of cultivating what actually is good. Now, why is it important for us to answer this question might be a better place to start. Well, we're talking about the bride of Christ. And if you find the church to be something that brings you no joy whatsoever, no encouragement whatsoever, then sooner or later, whose feet will you lay the accusation at finally? It's going to be at God's feet through Jesus. So if this is his chosen instrument and all we do is read bad news and see bad behavior and people who are supposed to be Christian saying things that are patently unchristian, choosing some sins as more uh, disgusting than others and, and not dealing with the planks in our own eye, yes, it would be easy for us to do that. <clears throat> My question would be, where are you looking? Because again, those that are doing the good work oftentimes are not putting it on blast because they're, they're too busy doing what God's actually called them to do than to announce it. And they may be even thinking what Jesus said, let the right hand not know what the left hand is doing. You're not to actually go around declaring that, hey, I just wanted you guys to know I'm pretty awesome and doing some pretty awesome things and I'm starting a 501c3 that you can give to. Uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 incumbent upon us to do the actual work of looking. And even more important, are you a Christian? Then you are the church. And look to yourself first. If you are not participating in the actual work of the church at the hands and feet of Jesus, who are you to look at someone else and say, you aren't doing enough and that's discouraging to me? If what we're looking for is some sort of critical mass to be encouraging to us, well, start aggregating together, right? Start actually doing the work and remember, invite other people into it. This was part of the problem. It was the problem for the Jewish folks even when they had the promised land. Remember, instead of them inviting people into the promised land to see the goodness of the Lord and then that radiating out from the promised land, they shut the borders, and refused anyone entrance unless they were willing to declare they were the favored people of God. Now, Robbie and I were just joking about this this morning. I said, maybe we'll continue to have people sign up from here on out because we want to be able to say on our church sign, uh, we are a discerning church. <laughs> My wife hates church signs, so just know the first lady would kibosh that pretty quick. <laughs> That's not what we want to be. We don't want to make it hard for people to, to, to get in to hear the word of the Lord and, and to see, because there's so many discouraging examples, but to be able to see among us the encouraging examples of a group of people who are loved by God, who love God and love their neighbors and are striving to be a repentant remnant. And so as we turn to the text, keep that in mind, that for wherever you could point the finger, if you claim to be a Christian, that finger is pointed at you first and foremost because you are the one who has the most control of you. 
And that is us together uh, being able to live that out. And so this is important for us to consider. So he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Now, the reason he anticipates this question is because everything that they had as distinctive, remember, he's kind of taken away from them as the way they thought it was to be distinctive. Now, it wasn't all deconstruction. And for those of you who get a little nervous when you hear that term, always listen for the second term, which is critically important. And if you are in the process of deconstruction of some kind, you need this second word in parallel, reconstruction. Right? If you're going to deconstruct, you want to deconstruct that which is unbiblical, that which doesn't glorify God, that which doesn't exalt Jesus. That's good deconstruction. As a thoroughly postmodern person who uh, has done all kind of deconstructive work in my own life, I can tell you if all you do is deconstruct, what you end up with is abject meaninglessness. You end up with the question of why go on? And so it's important that we have reconstruction, that reconstruction be framed by the character of God and who God is. This is what Paul's trying to do for them. What if Romans ended when he said, basically, look, circumcision doesn't do you any good. End of story. How encouraging a letter would that be to the church in Rome? Well, here he's trying to help them put back and and understand what they're really to do. So notice what he says. He, He frames the question also connecting to what he had previously said. He says, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. You have been given the oracles of God. Now, what does that mean? What are the oracles of God? Was it a a set of runes or bones or something that they would kind of, you know, throw out and say, okay, here's what God is saying. No, the oracles of God are his words, his character about himself, his self-declaration in and through his special revelation, Scripture. Now, remember, what they would have had is the Old Testament, right? And you may say, well, golly, that would have been tough. Well, let me just pause for a second, and, and, and I'm going to choose to read this here and, instead of later on. And notice its parallels with a song that we sang earlier in the service. This comes from Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Now, what Micah is doing there, and this is the conclusion of the book of Micah, this is, um, um, he has prophesied against uh, uh, Judah and Jerusalem. He has declared there's a shepherd coming. You'll get more of this uh, in Advent this season as we go through the book of Micah in Advent. But notice how he's distinguishing Yahweh, or the Lord our God, from all of the other gods. What's the distinguishing mark? His forgiveness. This is in the Old Testament. Too often we act as if the Old Testament is graceless. I have repeatedly, if you you don't get anything from the seven years of preaching I have done here, if you would walk away that there's actually grace in the Old Testament, I would consider my work well done. Because so often that's the thing we have twisted, that there's Jesus is saving us from this angry God. No, 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 no. It is the loving God who sent Jesus to accomplish this purpose. Listen to how Micah goes on. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Notice what he doesn't tread underfoot. You, me, his people. You may say, 
well, wait a minute now. Is there not judgment? Absolutely. And because this is true, we should take judgment all the more serious because of the fact that people are rejecting forgiveness. And we have to deal with that in our own heart as well. He goes on. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, being God, will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That is in the Old Testament. What a great declaration of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. This is what they were to be declaring. This was part of the oracle. Now, they were also supposed to declare judgment as well. You, you may say, well, that's keen of you to just read that section, but you skipped over a bunch of other places. And that's true. But judgment is always intended, and we'll, we'll see this in many places, to actually draw people to himself prior to final judgment. Any exile, any end-time judgment is intended to, to draw people to himself, to get people to take seriously who he is as God the creator-creature distinction. Final judgment, there's a reason that it's not yet come in full because he is a patient and long-suffering God. And remember, we should reflect his character as his people. Do you look like this? As one who bears the image of God, could it be said of you, because you have the oracles of God, that you pardon iniquity and that you in your marriage, as a parent, as a family member, as a neighbor, as a co-worker, could it be said of you that you pass over transgression? Could it be said of you that you delight in steadfast love? See, this is what we are to look like as the repentant remnant. This is, think about the hospitality of a church who delights in steadfast love. The Jews had gotten so tangled up, it was, it was interesting because they had early on been so hospitable that the Gentiles came in droves. Remember, there were more of the Gentiles than the Jews. So their, their ministry had, had been beautiful and had worked, but somewhere along the way, they lost the forest and the trees. And they got to trying to vie for power instead of display the love of God. Instead of d d displaying a genuine seriousness about sin, first in themselves and then in their brothers and sisters who would perish if they didn't take it seriously. And so this is what we are to look like. If we are given the oracles of God, it should change us first. What good does it do for me to, to, to tell you about something that has no impact on me? It's one of the reasons I'm a horrible salesman, because if it doesn't affect me, I cannot muster whatever it takes to get you to buy it, right? Like if I were a door-to-door -door vacuum salesman, I know people need vacuum cleaners, and I know they need good ones. But if I were that guy, I'd knock on your door, I'd be like, hey, look, this thing costs $175. It works really good. Do you want it? And then when you try to haggle, I'll be like, no, $175, that's, that's fine. You need it or not. Really, that, that's this, and some of you have gone through membership. That's, that's not too far above that, that sometimes <laughs> <clears throat> I'm selling you something. And so 
if it doesn't affect us first, if, if, if we're calling others to repentance and we're not bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, what oracle of God, what word of God are we giving them? If we don't take joy in gathering together for worship, where is it you're going to invite them? If we're constantly having to apologize for all the weird aunts and uncles that we have at our local church, if we were to invite somebody, is that where the work should be done? And who's having to apologize for you? And so we would do well to take the, the things that we so admire of God and cry out for the Holy Spirit to form them and shape them in us. And what we saw from the fruit of the Spirit is it is not a smorgasbord for you to pick and choose. You are called, beyond a shadow of a doubt, to display love in a variety of ways, some being gentleness and kindness. You're to show self-control. And so, so we are to look like God. We are to be formed by these things, not just try to sell something to people that we really don't want ourselves. And so what he's saying to them is, you were entrusted with the very word of God for the life of the world. We, the church, are entrusted with the same. Are we declaring it, displaying it as the repentant remnant? And all of you who claim to be Christian play a part in that. This is where I think we do damage in over-individualizing our Christianity, acting as if doesn't I can, I can do away with the church. I'll just go, it's just Jesus and me. Show me in Scripture where that ever is allowed as a lifelong project. Remember, Peter tried it, right? You remember the one time he tried it? So the transfiguration. He had the blessed opportunity to see the law and the prophets and Jesus transfigured. He got a glimpse of what is to come at the return of Christ. And you remember, he's like, I don't want none of that valley stuff no more. I'll build a little house. We can just stay right here. We're good. Again, what did Jesus say to him? No. The valley is where you belong after what you've seen because you need to tell the others. And it needs to be a passionate display and declaration. And then he goes on to anticipate something else that they might would say. Because again, if, you, if you're telling us that our Jewish distinctives are not intended for us to be favored and distinguished from everybody else, well, then what about the fact that everybody has failed at what they were supposed to do? Doesn't that kind of nullify what's going on? And this church should encourage you because all of the unfaithfulness of the church cannot mock God. I know you're thinking, I don't know, Cameron, I'm listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, man, I don't know. There's still Christians in Seattle. In fact, one of them is a friend of mine who pastors a church that came out of all that. He had PTSD from his proximity to Mark and, uh, and, and still ministers and is better for it. Like it is insane to see how much work that the Spirit has done in this young man's life and how much he has entrusted to him to, to declare God's love in Seattle, which is a tough place in many respects. It has been. You may say, well, I don't know, Cameron. I've read Jesus and John Wayne. I, that moral majority stuff, that's got us reeling. You're right, it does. And yet the Lord continues in faithfulness to not allow the ways in which his stuff has been twisted for others' gain or 
power struggle or any of these kinds of things doesn't have the final say. I think I've said this before. The class in seminary that kept me a Christian, you may say, man, you're, you're delicate, yes, uh, was Church History 1. Like after that class, my assurance of pardon was sealed. I'll be a Christian until I die. Because if the church can survive what was going on in Europe, Great Britain, the whole spectrum from the 12th through the uh, now, then God is on the throne. In fact, it is silly for America to think she's so arrogant that she could overshadow the glory of God. It's arrogant for us to think it were even possible. And so we need to recognize this second question that he anticipates as a good question for us, more so the answer than the question itself. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? How does he answer? By no means. That doesn't mean we don't wrestle with it. It doesn't mean that we don't work on it and pray about it. Does it mean that we don't critique it prophetically? Does it mean that we don't call for repentance? We should. But what it does mean is that we let, let it not rob us of the treasure that has been entrusted to us. And instead of recoiling from the church as besmirched bride, we draw near to her because of her instrumentality and because of forgiveness. We draw near to her because it is not the final say. What's interesting here is that Paul doesn't say, even if you were silent, the stones would cry out, which would be a riff on, on Jesus' triumphal entry in Luke 19. What he actually says is important for us, and he doesn't, he doesn't say it for our minds, we, we would not have gone where the Jewish listener would have gone. So what he does here is actually beautiful and masterful. Listen at how he actually responds. He says, <clears throat> excuse me, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now, that's an interesting thing to say out of that. So he's saying, look, God's faithfulness is, is it will go on. He has said his word will not return void. He has made it clear that redemption is his to give. And it doesn't depend on us, which actually should set us free to worship with greater spirit and truth. It should set us free to actually love our neighbors with greater zeal than we presently do because so many of you are worried to death. You're going to get it wrong, so you choose to do nothing instead. Hey, listen, I am numbered among you. And so what he is saying here is that, no, the Lord he will be faithful, but what he's actually getting at, which is very interesting, that what he's actually talking about that God be true about, that every man be a liar, are you ready? Your forgiveness. That the church, no matter how rotten she gets, no matter the mistakes she will make, there is, while there is breath in her lungs, the opportunity for forgiveness. Now you may say, well, where are you pulling that from? Well, because he actually quotes Psalm 51, 4. To the Jew, a quotation of Psalm 51 would have been something that would have really sparked something in them. For them, they used Psalm 51 often in worship, particularly when they wanted to be assured of their pardons. 
especially for the Day of Atonement. In other days, this would have been one of the high psalms that they would have committed to memory. And what's interesting is when Paul quotes, and this is important for you as a Bible reader, when you see in your Bible that, that someone is quoting Scripture from somewhere else, two things need to happen. You need to recognize that the greater context would have been obvious to the audience. And now that you're part of that audience, you want to go find out that greater context. So go read the stuff around what is quoted and and get a better feel for, okay, why is this being said here? So if we were to turn to Psalm 51, what we would recognize very quickly is it is the psalm penned by David after he has sinned against God through his relationship with Bathsheba and the slaughtering of Uriah and several other folks and trying to cover up and lie, and basically he ends up rending the kingdom in half. And so these words only make sense if you read one through three. So it would do us well to turn to Psalm 51 now and and hear the word of the Lord in context. Now, I won't read all of Psalm 51. I would see that you would do that sometime this week. It's a great psalm for you to have in your arsenal of prayer and knowing things to turn to. But for them to hear this, what he was saying is, let it be true that the Lord has forgiven you and that everyone who would accuse you and mock God because of you is a liar. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, which remember God delights in. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You got that so far? You're holding the context. It's really important for us. I'll say what's next. So that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Notice how Paul made an interesting shift in what it says. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you, God, are judged You may say, well, wait a minute now. Is Paul changing the scriptures, the audacity? Well, the context is very important. What he's saying is, is that because God is a forgiving God, that the world would not be able to judge God with being unfaithful or unfair or unwilling to forgive them as well. So what Paul is saying here is you have been entrusted with the very word of God, which is the declaration of his redemptive love in this world, most displayed, he's going to get to Jesus, which we have read every week for our assurance of pardon. But he's taking them there slowly. He's building it up brick by brick, what he has taken away. And he's saying, and may you in your unfaithfulness run which way? Which way, church? Which way should you run? That's, that's weak, and, and y'all be in the church, you, you can do better. No, seriously. I'm not trying to get you charismatic. You'll be fine if you loosen your vocal cords a little bit. It won't, it won't get too crazy in here, but let's try that better. Seriously, because I think we struggle to believe this. 
When you have sinned, and you will, which way should you run? Towards God. Why? So he doesn't have to find you or hunt you down and and hurt you more? No. Because he has already declared your forgiveness in the finished work of Christ. This is where it would be important for you to improve upon your baptism from last week. This is where it's important for you to prepare for the Lord's table, which we got coming next week. See what he's telling them, and this is very loving. He's saying, your faithlessness has not in any way, shape, or form rendered you out, nor has it destroyed what God is doing. And so he's saying, you should be a confessional church. It is God's, remember he said this earlier, it is his faithfulness, his kindness that should lead us to what? Repentance. See, part of our problem is we, I think, have a weak understanding of the necessity for ongoing confession of sin. One of the reasons that we do it as part of our liturgy every single week is so that at least you could be accused of doing it once a week. So you at least have an opportunity to be shaped. And you may be thinking, yeah, I I still just don't understand that. Well, James calls for us very specifically as God's church to confess our sins to one another. You may say, why do I need to do that if I'm already saved? So if you would permit me to read you a paragraph from J. Ligon Duncan III uh, in his essay on Matthew Henry's book, A Method of Prayer. He's making the argument for why confession is necessary. And I just read this yesterday, so that's why it's not in your bulletin, uh, but I'll be happy to send it to anyone who would like to have it in, in full quote. But if you would just permit me, he gives four reasons. Give your attention to the reading of this. And the fourth is the most important, I think, for for how we think about things. He says, first, believers, though united to Christ, still sin. Do we not? We still sin. We just do. Hence, to be realistic, we must acknowledge it. So part of confession is just saying, hey, look, I ain't there yet. That's why it's good. it's good for us. It's not like God is up there keeping score of how many times did you get them all right? Because the truth of the matter is, do you even, are you even aware of all the sins you've committed this week? Do you even have the capacity to, to give a full account? No. And then second, repentance is not a one-time past action in the Christian life. It is an ongoing project. We will not be finished with repenting until this life is over and the age to come has arrived. That means that salvation is not a one-and-done deal. Too many of us view, and this is where we fail to improve upon our baptism, it's just a past event that gives me access to a future glory. And the in-between is just tyranny of the urgent. No. Ongoing sanctification is preparing you to better enjoy heaven. It's expanding your palate and your ability to ingest what will be overwhelming. He goes on. Third, is essentially displease, uh, sin is essentially displeasing to God. True, he has dealt with the punishment we deserve for our sin at the cross, but this does not make sins committed by believers any less displeasing to God. Indeed, they are all the more. The Lord does not take pleasure in evil, So when believers sin, the Lord is displeased. This displeasure with sin will not be eradicated until he eradicates sin in all the saints on the last day. 
Thus we confess our sin as grieving to our loving and long-suffering heavenly Father. So this would be the place where there are times where he disciplines us, his children. Remember, and that is a good gift from a loving father. Would that we were better at judging ourselves in this regard and repent it, not so that we could get out from under fear of what he may take away, but instead recognizing what we might lose as far as great gain is concerned in understanding his love for us. And then this last one I think is, is, is most pertinent and kind of jarring. Fourth, the goal of our salvation is not rescue from hell. That is not the goal of your salvation. It is part of it, but it is not the goal. Nor even justification. Is he even still reformed? It is holiness and the glory of God. See, we are being fashioned further into the image of God. This is why I am, have been pressing you as the Spirit has been pressing me to read some of these passages in a way that we're going, does this look like me? Which means, am I reflecting the image of God? Micah 7 is a great one, as there are many other passages as well. Because if we aren't being shaped further into the image of God, then what exactly is it that we're doing? And confession helps us in this regard. He says, until the goal is achieved, there will always be baggage in our lives that will have to be left behind and which needs to be repented of before we enter glory. For all these reasons, it's important that believers confess their sins in prayer privately and congregationally. Why congregationally? Well, so that you remember you're part of the church. You're not just an individual. And you may be thinking, some of those things you put up, I don't think I'm guilty of. Well, I got good news for you. I wrote it. I was guilty of it. And I'd appreciate you praying for me. So how are you displaying and declaring God's faithfulness in your spheres of influence? That is an important question. If you have judgment on the church, begin with yourself. And then are you inviting others to join you in what you're doing to display and declare the faithfulness of God? This is our task, and we do so in Christ. Yes? And so Romans 3, 1 through 4, teaches us that God's faithfulness is to be displayed and declared by the repentant remnant. That should be, repentance should be one of the great characteristics of us until Christ calls us home. And too often, it is not characteristic of us. We are not swift to repent. We instead want to argue over whether or not I was actually guilty of or participated in or owned certain things or didn't own certain things or voted this way or voted that way. None of that matters. We should see it as a great gift that we get to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what we need. If you would, join me, church, in becoming more humble a more repentant church that longs for us to be hospitable amongst each other, humble amongst each other. That way, folks don't have to apologize for all the weird aunts and uncles at their local church. And so that we might get entrusted with some folks from your spheres of influence that come to know Jesus. What a gift it would be for him to entrust that to us. Let's pray. Father, Thank you, 
that you delight in steadfast love. I thank you for actually how gentle Paul is being with a group of people who would have been incredibly frustrating, who went from understanding their missionality and the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing all that, that, that God was doing and drawing the Gentiles in, all that was happening in the finished work of Christ, only to try to create hierarchy and power, to flip back and do as the world does. Paul could have been much harsher, but yet he has been so loving and gentle. May we be instructed as your church in these same things as well. May we be convicted of what's been entrusted to us, your very word and all the means of grace. But even more important, Lord, may we recognize with great joy that what's been entrusted to us as well is forgiveness, both for us and to be given away lavishly. May we be a repentant remnant, Lord, that honors and glorifies you, that displays and declares your faithfulness in a world that so desperately needs to see it, to hear it, and to taste and see that you are good. In Christ's name, amen.